Everyone and welcome to Ladies Night, the official podcast of US Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Shahadi and you are listening to the artist Huga of hugamusica.com and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh Capablanca. His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast through shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at US Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our US Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ladies Night. I'm Jennifer Shahadi, and today I have a very special guest, Donna Dodson. She is an artist, a sculptor. She's had residencies and shows all over the world, from Denmark to Taiwan to Peru. Her career has really been booming lately as a recent show, The Amazons Among Us, was met with critical acclaim. And she's going to Austria in 2022 as a Fulbright scholar. So the reason Donna is on Ladies Night is that there's a big chess connection with her work. In fact, I intersected with Donna a few years ago when she invited me to be part of her chess-themed 2017 show at the Boston Sculptors Gallery, The Match of the Matriarchs. The title of the show referred to Donna's epic chess set made of massive sea creatures in wood. And it was an incredible set. We'll certainly have some of those pieces in the show notes if you want to check it out, as well as a link to the full set. But it was also striking the concept behind it and how it ties into our podcast. Donna pointed out that maleness is often seen as a default in a world that really does include so many female and non-binary identities. And she wrote, all of the figures are females in this chess set as opposed to the lone queen in modern chess sets. I want my audience to consider a world where everyone being female is normal. An all-female chess set seems like an apt metaphor for this worldview. Well, Donna, that's a perfect way to welcome you to Ladies Night. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm really excited to be your guest on this podcast. Yeah, congrats so much on all of your recent success. But I do want to start by talking about your extraordinary sea creature chess set, The Match of the Matriarchs. I promise that I'll link to the beautiful pieces in the show notes. But can you give us a thought about one of your favorite pieces from that chess set, just so we can kind of have an anchor about what's so special about it? Sure. It's loosely based on. The idea that the squid and the whale are this, they have sort of this epic underwater sea battle. So one side is like octopus, squid, and cuttlefish, and one side is um, cetaceans or whales, so orca, narwhal, and elephant seals. So on the octopus side, since all the figures are female, there's two queens. And, um, and so it's kind of a British idea. There's a reigning queen, but then there's basically one in the wings ready to assume the throne. And so on that side, I use kind of red as a color to tie them together, although typically it would be white and black, obviously, in chess. So on that side, the 
not the reigning queen, but the um, the queen, the true queen on the um, chessboard. Her hands are painted red. And I see that as kind of like the reigning queen couldn't get away with doing anything. But like the one who's really not in the public eye, she could get her hands dirty and she could, you know, take care of things. But she's not. So I love that. I love that they all have different personalities. That's interesting. So two queens, one in the center who's acting and then one in the waiting. And that was on the team cephalopod, right? I'm, I'm sorry, am I pronouncing that wrong? Cephalopods, yeah. Cephalopods, exactly. okay. So she's on the cephalopods. And those are the ones that have tentacles, right? Like the, like the octopus and the squid and those sea creatures. Now, which one do you think would win between the squid and the octopus family and the uh, cetaceans? Because, you know, most people would say the sea mammals, right? Yes. Well, the reason that we know that there are things like giant squid in the sea is because of the scars on the side of whales. And we've never really seen squid until recently. It was actually a woman who figured out how to go deep enough, but also how to use light that didn't scare away the squid. And that's kind of how we know how we've been able to see them. But I just thought it was interesting that we only knew they existed because of the scars on the side of whales. So they were hurting whales. I don't know if they were, I don't know who really wins. It's, I think they're equally matched. I think if you don't think about it that much, you would probably pick the sea mammals because they seem like bigger and scarier. But um, I, I, I understand there's so much recent research about how intelligent, um, for instance, octopuses are. Absolutely. And um, there was a whole book I read. It was Sid, um, I have to think of her name. She wrote a whole, she did a lot of research at the Boston Aquarium. I mean, they're famous for escaping, right? Like the octopus are famous for escaping from what people think are, you know, closed tanks. One of the things that she wrote that stuck with me was the idea that when they touch you, they change colors. Their, their neurosensory system is such that in a way they're more intelligent than us because their fingers are also not just the receptor, but it's also the brain. Like for us, if you receive in your fingers, but it has to go to your brain to process kind of what you're touching. And so they can sense right at the point of touch and process it. So um, anyways, I read, yeah, I read like a whole bunch of books about octopus and squid and cuttlefish. For some reason, there were just a whole bunch that came out recently or at the time when I was making that set. So basically octopuses have eight brains, right? Or nine brains, like one for each one of their, like their hands and then another, another central brain. So, and I don't even know, I think that's a very like human way to think about it, like central brain. I, I don't even know if that's a thing, but I understand they have nine brains, which Certainly makes them quite intelligent. And, you know, octopus actually has another chess connection, Donna, which is that because the knight, if it's in a center square, can reach eight different squares, um, they often call it an octopus knight. Um, this, I, this, I think, is, was particularly um, prominent in Spanish chess analysis. They often call it like el pupo, which is Spanish for octopus, but it's really kind of carried over because it's such a cool term. So um, children often talk about their octopus knights. and. So I couldn't help but think of that as you have the titles of these chess pieces, the octopus grandmother and uh, the second one as well, the octopus grandmother too. Now, which one moves like the queen and which one moves like the king? Because earlier you said that you have the reigning queen and then the queen that's like waiting in the wings. But which one is like the king movement if the game is actually played with your chess set? 
That's a good question. It's actually the reigning queen. So the one on the throne moves like a king. So in a way, she's more restricted in what she can do. Again, like the the real queen, you know, is like um, the one that can really has all the power, right? Because she's not in the spotlight and she doesn't have the title. So in some ways, I feel like there's a social freedom there. That's an analogy for the real queen. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because she gets to she gets to explore more unencumbered because she's not always um, being scrutinized. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, one of my favorite pieces, I would say, there's so many, but I really like the bishops on the on the uh, cetacean side. Uh, they're they're just so stunning, and there's one that's very dissimilar to all the others. It's like a little darker with maybe perhaps a different type of wood. And uh, like skinnier, and it just like is so striking. You call it uh, the narwhal ante. Yeah, the whole idea is kind of um, you know just thinking about really families. You know, thinking about my own upbringing and how I had such powerful role models in my family, whether it was grandmothers or aunts or my mom, or and my role as a daughter or granddaughter. I guess to me that was I was just thinking in. In kind of a traditional sense, it's how women learn about power and how to manipulate power and who has power and the analysis of power. For me, it was always like my women, my my women, my mom, my aunts, who would tell me, you know, confide in me and and look at things and discuss things like that with me. So for me, that was, I think, some of the motivation for why I made the chest set in the first place. Well, I'm so glad that you did because it also got us a chance to meet. And um, one striking thing in, in your work, um, and particularly on all of the pieces except for the pawns in this chess set, there's very um, beautifully carved breasts on, I think, every single piece outside the, uh, the pawns, as I said. You actually had another piece, um, Seagull Cinderella from 2016, which uh, was really the subject of controversy because of the breasts, right? You know, I was rereading some of the stories about that piece. It was an eight-foot sculpture, a stunning wood sculpture. Um, You can describe it some more if you like, Um, but it was met with a a surprising amount of controversy. Yeah, it was funny because the original Seagull Cinderella was a wood carving and I used the wood carving as a maquette and I made an eight foot tall one. Um, It's carved styrofoam and then it's covered in cement and painted. And I used that that as a maquette for the larger one that I made for a public art project. And um, it was in several public art projects. This, this is all kind of the irony, but it, the one that landed it as the subject of a controversy was down in New Bedford. I, um, it was a temporary public art project. Um, the curator and the director and were all women. They didn't think anything about selecting it or whatever, how it was going to be received. And um, basically somebody drove by, a man drove by with his kids and they said, look, dad, it's a duck with boobs. And he started a petition to take it down. And the mayor's office said, you know, listen, they called me and they said, listen, like, don't worry. Like, we're good. It's not going anywhere. So they stuck up for me. And so the press just kind of had a field day with it. It started with like all his things. Like I was from Boston and that wasn't okay. Like how, what did, what business did I have putting artwork there? And then it was what does New Bedford have to do with seagulls? Because it's a coastal town. And then, you know, his la- his last one was like, it's just ugly, you know? And so for me, it was kind of like, um, it really aroused something in him. And he didn't get very many signatures. And 
The artists got really into it because they were really upset about basically one person being able to ruin, you know, a public art, a public art project. And the, and some people liked it. Like there wasn't really any room to have dialogue, which is kind of what I kept wanting. But the, the press really had a heyday. It was like the Boston hating man and the seagull ruffles feathers. And then it was like the boob hating man. Oh, that was this other thing. Like we all know seagulls don't have boobs, you know, and it was like, you know, I mean, I, at first it was kind of awful. It was like, oh no, <laughs> am I like a horrible artist? Like it was kind of awful feelings. And then, but I just kind of kept sharing it. And there were enough voices that were like, no, like I like it. Or why it aroused so much, you know, interest. Maybe just my husband always says, cause it was just larger than life. Like that it challenged something in men about like women being smaller. And then there was this giant female figure that it just seemed to really push a lot of men's buttons, not all of them, but it did go, I don't know. And it it was so maternal. I mean, the fact that he was protesting it because somehow it was lewd or making his children think about breasts or whatever was just kind of ironic because it wasn't, it was very grandmotherly. It was very matronly. It wasn't, it wasn't overly well endowed. It wasn't graphic. And it was just made up to I mean, it was, it was just there were so many levels of irony. That is really interesting. I think you're I think your husband's right. The fact that it was like an oversized chess queen, like this not a chess queen, it was an oversized um female figure. Could have been a chess queen. This would be a beautiful chess queen, in fact. But it it's like eight foot, right? So bigger than any um female human that you've ever seen, but still like somewhere on that scale. I think that probably did arouse some sort of like anger or deep-seated jealousy in people. But it was actually really funny reading some of the articles. They sound like something from The Onion. Like it doesn't even seem real that people could get so upset about that. But of course, you know, breasts are something that really is often a center of controversy. Um, And we've had that controversy recently in the chess world with the FIDE sponsor for women's chess that was just announced for Breast Implant Company. And because um, you have created so many beautiful breasts in your work, I was wondering what your take was on that. Yeah, I did. I I was following your comments very closely. I thought you really had a very sensitive, thoughtful response. Um, I found myself agreeing with you, honestly, that in and of itself, it's not it's not evil, right? Like it's some women choose to do it and they make them feel better about themselves or whatever. But Again, like in, especially in something like chess, where the focus isn't on beauty or physical appearance to have all of a sudden, you know, it just threatens to have the dialogue somehow be influenced or an unnecessary focus on how, how girls look, you know, and that, that seems to be where chess, I think, provides a lot of intellectual freedom really for girls and women who play it. That's not, they're seeking to play it for their own personal goals and their own sense of achievement. Yeah. It would be a shame if somehow, you know, they were more made somehow more self-conscious about how they looked when they played or something like that. I feel like it's just something that chess seems like it's, it's a little bit more free from some of that focus on how girls and women look. I agree, especially because it is so popular among girls. I think that in your piece, um, The Match of the Matriarchs, it's nice to see the depiction of breasts in a way that isn't um, overtly sexual, right? And 
Interestingly, one of the pieces that you invited Daniel, my husband Daniel, Marome, and I um, to show was breast milk versus formula, which is this chest problem in the shape of a breast, and it's created with um, breast milk and formula. I mean, this was a photograph, of course. The set itself doesn't exist anymore. Again, it's like looking at the breast, but looking at the maternal aspects of it, like the the some of the biological magic behind it, not just that like sexualized part. So I thought that was kind of interesting that that showed up in both the Match of the Matriarchs and also in one of the pieces that we showed. You know, I'm very aware that women have all different shape and size breasts. And so in my sculptures, there's never like one way I approach breasts. And I think that makes, in some ways, it makes my work very female because women would know that. Like women would just be very sensitive. Like we're all told all the time how we look and how we measure up to other women based on our breasts. Like that comes deep from puberty on, right? Like, and how you rate really in your family, like your breast size is always this huge thing that I don't even think women think very much about or even think that much about their breasts as like a major feature of themselves or their personality. But yet women are like, get so much attention, you know, externally. And so like when I, my figures are all different, you know, and back to the seagull Cinderella, the one thing that we did is the artists rallied around and they wanted to make seagull Cinderella inspired work. And they made like quilts and aprons and but we gave all that money to breast cancer, two different organizations. We had the show like twice because it just felt like this hatred of the seagull's breasts. Like it just, again, and it was a sculpture. This is not even like a it, sculpture doesn't have breasts. It's just a sculpture of materials, right? Like, and so it did feel kind of like this attack, you know, on something that is just part of being a woman, whether you're a mom or not, right? Like we all, women have breasts. So I'm glad you you brought that up. It's an important part of my work that I don't talk about that much. And also in your recent show, um, Amazon's Among Us, I mean, that also had a bit of a chess connection in that in chess variants, where a queen also has the power of the night, it's often called an Amazon. So a woman that's even more powerful than a queen is called an Amazon. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on that and also how that might tie into the show, which kind of explores the the powerful female. Yeah, I did not know that. That is a great, and I did not know that, yeah, that the night is sometimes called the octopus. I'm loving all these um, things I'm learning. I mean, a couple, one of the inspirations for one of the pieces was um, a warrior queen, the Rani of Jhansi, sort of historic um, warrior queen from India who. Um, very famously, you know, battled against the British. But the other Amazon figures in the show, some are just drawn from my own family history. I had a great aunt that was in the wax and um, was in the military in World War II and served abroad in um, Europe. And she was certainly a big family heroine. Um, she, what I, what was really interesting to me is that the the wax, all different branches of the military have little insignia that, you know, show what they do, whether it's the Navy has an anchor or the Air Force would have wings. Well, the wax had, they used Athena's helmet, which I thought was so interesting that the military would use (laughs) a Greek goddess 
for these women because they didn't know what they were going to do, really. And they first they thought, well, they're going to be busy. We'll have them be the busy bees. There was a woman in charge and she was like, absolutely not. We're not going to be the busy bees. <laughs> and so they became, you know, they used Athena's helmet like on their lapels of their uniforms. So there was like a lot of layers, I think, in terms of what was inspiring for me about thinking about Amazons. Lydia Spiro, she collaborated with you on Amazons Among Us. She is a an Olympic weightlifter and an artist. And she was also part of the Match of the Matriarchs, which included so many aspects. I mean, your stunning chess set, all 32 pieces of it was a centerpiece, but there were so many things going on around it. Because you're a sculptor, there was actually all this wall space. And that's why you invited me and Clidia to be part of it as well. And Daniel, because um, we were like covering up the walls a little bit with her stunning photographs. And then my piece with Daniel called Not Particularly Beautiful. And then we also did like a live performance incorporating like weightlifting and chess. That also makes a lot of sense with the Amazon connection that women who are very strong physically are often like derided then as not being women anymore, right? It's being more like men, which which is, no, they're just strong women. Right. That's a that's an ancient quote, which is that the Amazons were regarded more like men because of their courage than women because of their sex. And it's like, oh, courageous women, like women can't be courageous or it sets up like a false binary. And I loved having your work in the show. I love that you think about, obviously you think about chess, you play chess, but that you also think about it as an art form, you know, that you use art to talk about conceptually different ideas about chess. Like I loved that. That was amazing. Like I would have wanted you to be in the show anyway, <laughs> playing with the chess up, but it was so fun to have those other layers that to see your art and have your art be part of the show was terrific. It was an honor. And I also really like, uh, CrossFit and, and weightlifting. So it was also really interesting to meet Lydia and hear her perspective. I think that there's also a gender fluidity that you kind of see in your work as well. Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, two of the pieces were um, Black Panther and Sibylle. And so one obviously was the idea of the Black Panther, the comic strip character. Like, what if that was what, what if it was a female character? And then when I, as I was researching the Black Panther, basically at some point in the um, comic strip, Ta-Nehisi Coates wanted to bring in other writers. And he brought in Roxane Gay, who wrote a comic strip called The World of Wakanda. And in it, in hers, there were the two women generals were lovers. And it, it didn't make its way into the movie, which to me, I thought it was a missed opportunity because I feel like comics and movies are really geared towards teenagers and like college age, you know, just young people when all that identity is coming to the surface and to not have, to not have visible characters. I just thought like, oh, that was a missed opportunity. So my sculptures, I made Sibylle and Black Panther and their lovers. I made them with like twin tattoos and I wanted to deal with that kind of, it felt almost like an erasure. Yeah. Roxanne Gay, the author of Bad Feminist and hunger, you know, and, and since Amazon's among us, I mentioned this in the intro, it, it seems to me, at least looking from the outside, that you your career has um, really escalated, that you've really leveled up or become like, got into that next level. Is that is that accurate? Or um, has it just been like one gradual, like kind of 
um, ascent to um, more success in the art world? That's a good question. I'm not sure artists ever feel like they're successful, (laughs) even when they are successful. I think for me, you know, Match of the Matriarchs was more, for me, it felt like I was getting more like my, uh, like my stride, like I wanted to do. That was like a huge, ambitious project. And the Amazons, you know, has led now into the Fulbright, which you mentioned earlier, that I want to um, translate that into digital avatars and do make an animated movie. And I'm collaborating with another um, woman named Trina Baker. And so for me, I, I just think my work has gotten a lot more conceptually stronger. And I think that's helped it. You know, I think in the beginning, I'm, I'm, I love carving wood. There's a lot of craft in what I do. And I, I like that process, but I think trying to figure out the conceptual part of my work has been much harder, you know, and much like a slower process, I would say. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Because it does, it seems so strong now, especially because I'm interested in so many of the themes that you're working with. So yeah, that's, that's great to hear. Now, when you invited us into the Match of the Matriarchs, um, our new piece that we created for the show, Not Particularly Beautiful, which since the show has actually been in three different editions, um, was based on the antipathy to the mad woman chess queen. Like, so this was the chess piece that um, in the 1500s transformed into the queen, the most powerful piece on the board. Before that, the queen was actually a very weak piece, right? She could only move one square diagonally in each direction. Um, and you got this wonderful, uh, had a printing of a 1400s uh, sketch or engraving. I mean, how do I say that? There was Gratin Dupont, who was a critic at the time, created this chessboard with a mean um, comment for the queen on all 64 squares, all in old French. And so you got a, a beautiful print of that for the show. And so what we did was we created a, a new version where all of the mean things about the queen were, were about female chess champions. And they were from YouTube and Twitch and Twitter. Yeah, sorry, YouTube, mostly YouTube. <laughs> but moderation needs some work there. Sorry. It was three years ago or four years ago, but still. And um, we, we created 32 of them ourselves, but then 32 of them were created by the artists. And we gave you the honor as the lead artist of the show to fill in the center square. And can you tell us about what you chose to put in the center square and why? Sure. It kind of comes back to Seagull Cinderella. Um, I put in the word ugly because I felt like, like women women are supposed to be able to be basically leveled. Like our whole self-worth is based on our appearance. And it's like someone calling you ugly is like their ability to totally dismiss you as like a human being. And so I felt like it, it had um, just like, because it had come up with Seagull Cinderella, like he couldn't really make any logical arguments about the sculpture. And his last insult was like, it's just ugly, you know? And it was like, so what if you think it's ugly? Like I. You know, but it, it just felt like that word is so loaded. Again, like coming back to women, I feel like we're we're asked to pay like extra attention to how we look instead of our merit, our intelligence, our courage, you know, our strength being the thing that, you know, we're judged for. I mean, Hillary Clinton famously talked about the extra hours that she had to spend like in her hair and makeup instead of campaigning. I think she was comparing it to Bernie Sanders, but it was like, 
if you added up the hours that she had to spend on her appearance, it was it was like days or weeks that like he had that extra time to campaign. And that that's just an example. But again, like this idea that our physical beauty is always is always at play. It's always talked about like way worth way more than it I think it means to us or or should mean to us in terms of our own just like sense of self-worth and value as a person in the world. And I love that that chessboard that you guys created. And I love that it was interactive and that, you know, I think at some point people even wrote really actually kind things towards women, right? Like they even turned it around. Exactly. They did turn around. They started writing like powerful. And once the interesting thing was once one person did that, um, it created a domino effect which is amazing to me because that's exactly the way that online message boards, which this piece was inspired by, operate as well. So if one person says something nasty, it kind of attracts other trolls. And if one person is super positive, especially if they're like a more influential person, it encourages other people to also be positive. It it shows how infectious you can be with your energy and, you know, what you say about people. That's really a powerful message. Although I also like the ones where people wrote mean things because it was, I think it was cathartic, mm-hmm. you know, put us on this lineage of like centuries of people kind of undermining the inevitable rise of women power with, uh, you know, mean, mean statements. And, you know, it, it, it struck me that it happens at a moment before women gain more power, right? So like, as the queen is gaining more power, people have really mean things to say, Right. And as, you know, females like Alexandra Botez or Anna Rudolph kind of take up like some of the major spots in the chess entertainment sphere, that's when people have really mean things to say, right? That it's like mm. almost, it almost is like a, a presage of like women empowerment. Because I'm a member of Boston Sculptors, I sit during the shows and I remember sitting there one evening and this young woman came in and she was looking at your board and the 15th century one. And um, she said, like, I, I don't know which one was written 500 years ago and which one is the, is the one from online, because I think some of the language in yours that you had called from online, it was like bodacious wench or something, but it was like something that was just like Victorian language or like language from the 15th century. It was like, wow, she just said, I don't know, I don't know which one. Bodacious Wench. I feel like that is that going to be the next book. Wow, I like yeah. that. Bodacious <laughs> Wench. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a good one. But I guess the also the a word I was also looking for is backlash. Like when women have something that, you know, men have traditionally had, they're just angry about it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. right? To me it's like the chess game was made so much better by the queen becoming more powerful. So it's kind of like short-sighted to think that like giving women power in this space is going to make it worse or, you know, reduce the resources. It could just make it way better. I do think that, yeah, that whole, the whole 15th century backlash was, I mean, I came across it in Marilyn Yellow's book and I mean, he made all the black squares rhyme in E-S-S-E and all the white squares rhyme in a different type of French noun or whatever. And yeah, the energy that went into it, like he really got into it. Like he was really, he had a lot of material to work with, I'm sure, but it is kind of scary. I mean, backlash is not funny. I think women are very aware of violence. And when you cross the line, 
to be met with violence. Like, I, I mean, women are very sensitive to that. And it, it's like, it's no joking matter, right? Like there's, it evokes a lot of fear in women. I think it keeps women from maybe being, you know, as powerful as we all could be. I think women are very, very attuned to what lies behind like crossing those barriers and yeah, what you're calling backlash. And that's why like there's so much flattery for women who succeed in male dominated spheres, whether it be chess or poker, the two that I'm like, you know, heavily invested in. I get it. It's amazing. These confident, strong, brilliant women. But there's also this other side of it that, you know, the women who don't enter chess or don't enter poker, you know, maybe they're doing it for logical reasons, you know, that they're, that the world, they don't think the world is safe enough yet. That's not necessarily wrong of them in all cases, sadly. So that's, that's something to think about too, that, you know, they're, maybe they're not wrong. Maybe we need to listen to what they have to say rather than just like praise the women who um, overcome. When you wrote Ugly, I'm in that center square. I also couldn't help but notice that on your website, you have a lot of quotes at the end that you say inspire you. And one of them is from um, the woman who played Precious in the 2009 film, Gabori um, Sadabi. And it is, if they hadn't told me I was ugly, I would have never searched for my beauty. Yes. That's sort of an irony too, right? Like, you know, like everything happens for a reason or something, but that can also be used like in a victim blaming way or like in a, in a way of like, um, I don't know, like a false sense of like, oh, you know, we know why that happened, you know, or something. But yeah, that I, that really struck me. I just thought that was so profound, you know, and I, I definitely feel like, I mean, I am a tall woman. I am a big woman. I forever don't fit into women's pants, you know, or shoes, you know, I'm, I have an oversized 10 foot. This idea of just not conforming is is like very personal for me. I have experienced that a lot of those more difficult feelings, you know, and I think luckily, I mean, I had support, I had a support system that counteracted it, you know, but I do think like that those are very real struggles, I think for young women and, and girls that, you know, certainly true in my own life, you know, did it make me try to do something else or try to overcome that? I mean, I I do think it did. I do think that sometimes negative things are the inspiration, even if it's just proving people wrong, you know, like Jay-Z has a whole song about that. The motivation for me was them telling me what I could not be, you know, like that, that idea is, um, it's true in my life. I mean, it can work both ways. It can be discouraging, but then for, it has like an amplifying effect. Like if it's not discouraging, then it could be very encouraging, (laughs) you know, it's an extreme effect. And by the way, I didn't know you had large feet. I do too. So I can, <laughs> I can lend you some shoes. Great. Now I'm looking, but now that I'm looking at the, um, the, I'm looking back at your website with the, uh, the match of the matriarchs. And I know like a lot of the, the characters have shoes and I feel like most of their feet are on the smaller side, but they are fish. So. Well, the one that you like, the narwhal has gigantic feet. I like that. I had to make, <laughs> I had to make the whole base. And my husband kept saying, just make the feet small, make them fit on the base, like all the rest of them. And I was like, no, like she has huge feet. Like we'll just make the base bigger for her. You know, and this is like, I guess the plus and minus of an artistic chess set that they don't all conform. They're not all uniform, like a commercially purchased chess set or traditional Staunton chess set. And so a couple of them are like, they're, they're bigger than the rest. 
and it's funny that you're picking up on that. And yeah, it's their feet that are huge. Yeah, that's right. Some of the bigger ones have smaller feet and then some of the skinnier ones have big feet. So there's this, there's like not always, it's not always like the way that you would expect, which is just the same as humans, right? So gosh, that, that's definitely a a line of thought that we could continue on. But (laughs) instead I wanted to talk about the relationship you have with wooden chess, because um, that is the material that you work with uh, predominantly. I wonder what you can tell us about the type of woods that you use and um, your preferences and how that's kind of changed in your career. Sure. I used to just kind of work with um, locally sourced wood, but I do, I got pickier as I went along, partly because a lot of people wanted to give me pine, but it's very soft and I really don't, I turned down all pine now. It's too soft for me. And so I really like harder woods like cherry or walnut. Even some people have given me like reclaimed beams that were made out of like gorgeous Southern yellow pine and they have a really um, pronounced green, you know, match of the matriarchs has a lot of those Oak, obviously is a really beautiful wood like spalted birch or spalted cherry where it has all the concentric lines of a log, but then the spalting is kind of a fungus. And so it makes very irregular lines throughout the wood, which if you dry it and treat it, it arrests that. So it just, it stops basically eating the wood to compost it. And then the mulberry, keep talking, the narwhals, mulberry, it's a local wood. It's very gorgeous, you know, rich yellow, golden color. I tend to find all my wood locally and I tend to use logs that people have cut down. I don't, I don't tend to go out in a way. It's very green. I I don't buy exotic woods or anything. And I don't go out and just cut a whole tree down and take a little piece out of it. Kind of use what people take down or because people know I carve. A lot of times people will reach out and say, oh, I've got a tree, you know, could you use it? People love the idea that you're going to do something. You're going to be able to use it, right? Otherwise, what's going to rot or they have to chip it or whatever. Like people, I think naturally love the idea of reusing something, giving it a second life. Absolutely. So basically like a tree, if a tree falls or has to be cut down for some reason, then um, they'll like, there will be like some way for you to like access that or somebody will bring it to you um, or to part of it to you. And then you'll use that. And so you said pine is a no-go because it's too soft, but your favorite is well, it sounds like you have a lot of favorites. I like cherry. That's a local one that when you carve it, it just has such a sweet smell. And that I love. Black walnut is is harder to get in New England. You have to go to Virginia or North Carolina to get that. And But I love black walnut. It has like purple and tan and orange. It has so many colors within it that um, it's just a surprise what it ultimately is going to look like. Do you usually just let the natural color of the wood stand? Typically I do. I I mean, I almost always add, not always, but a lot of times I add like color accents. I don't ever really like color the whole thing. I like just to have um, some accents in the work that have color in them. So it's interesting to me that, you know, chess players use wood for their chess pieces. And then we even call playing chess, like pushing wood sometimes. And yet there's not really a lot of, knowledge about like wood, at least among players, um, certainly among manufacturers, there's a lot. What is the woods that are, you would think are most like typically used for like the, 
fancy or even like mid-range chess sets that people generally use if they're using a wood set, not a plastic one? Oh, that's a good question. I would assume that, I mean, traditionally it might've been ebony or something because it's so black as a wood or ivory, right? Like that would be traditional, although people don't really use those um, materials anymore in modern chess sets. I would say walnut lends itself to them. I mean, they could also be something like maple and just painted, you know, Um, maple would lend itself to the white pieces naturally because it's a very light colored wood and it's often stained white. So it looks, you know, or or painted white. I wouldn't think pine. I would think maybe a harder wood. Maple or Oak is not a great one because the pore has really wide pores. So it doesn't look smooth, you know, and most wooden chess sets are more smooth. It used to be actually that it wasn't black versus white chess sets. It used to be actually red versus white quite typically. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Um, I think it had something to do with that, with with like availability of dyes and woods. I think that was part of the reason actually. Hmm. And now there's also sometimes red versus black is a color scheme I sometimes see as well. Um, because those are very stunning wood chess sets. Um, there was mm-hmm. one that I used for this art project I did with uh, Larry List. Uh, we did we created this roulette chess wheel, and then in order to do a exhibition with it, we borrowed like a red and black set from the House of Staunton. Oh, that was nice! Wow, I think I've only seen pictures of that online, but that sounds stunning. So that's the cool thing like about chess that a lot of times, especially the nicer chess sets are not really at all literally white and black, right? It's usually like a lighter brown and a darker brown. Right. And those are the ones that people really kind of, well, I wouldn't say everybody likes them the most, but in general, those are the ones that like if you were playing in a tournament and there was like a top board and all the other boards are plastic, like those top few boards would usually be played with like dark brown versus light brown. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Do you think it changes how people relate to the pieces? Do you think like the black and white is sort of how people think about chess or how they learn to play chess? Yeah, you know, I've wondered about that because you, to some some part, like if I had to just make a hypothesis, I would think like, oh, like the contrast being greater is good because then like, it's like easier to quickly make like a differential between the white pieces and the black pieces, right? So maybe like it's cleaner when you're thinking about it, but really sure that's true at all. Maybe the opposite is true. Maybe it's good for them to be a little bit more similar so that you're always looking at interactions between pieces. But Mm. I guess that would be kind of an interesting study. I know that sometimes people use really bright colors when they're trying to get little kids involved. Like for instance, my son loves purple. So, you know, just something that like just pops. But really, really strong chess players really usually don't like super bright colors because it could be a strain on the eyes. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I I guess the only thing I would add about, you know, wooden chess sets, most, you know, because traditional sets are, you know, usually done on a lathe, right? Even the pawns that I did, they were done on a lathe. So they're, you know, except for the knight would have to be carved. But I think most of the other pieces are, could be made on a lathe where they're, you know, they're carved, they're concentric, right? Ah, yeah, that's true. So the knight is the one that, you know, people often judge a chess set by because it's like the most technically um, difficult, right? Yeah, you'd have to carve the top of it, even if you spun the bottom, you know, um, to make the base of it. But yeah, like a rook, yeah, you'd have to maybe carve the top of that a little bit. But most of them could just be 
fun on a lead. I think they are, you know, or at least historically. I don't know if they still are. But I, that's faster in some ways than hand. Carving is much more labor intensive. Um, could you explain what you mean? Well, like on a lathe, it's a, it's a machine. So you're kind of, you just take a block of wood and you, you hold a knife to it, but it, it spins around really fast. So you, can, you could make it faster than carving. You have to, you know, carve by hand. So it's, it's just a, a slower process in some ways. But with your pieces, you know, they're so, they're so large that you carve it all by yourself, right? I did. Yeah. I carved all the, all the pieces. I did have someone um, make all the pawns, although I supplied all the wood. I wanted, I was really, um, I didn't want to just use any wood. Like I collected all the wood and I wanted all the wood to, to match and complement the other pieces. I mean, I know how to do it for another job I've had many, many, many jobs in my life that I've had. One was an architectural mill worker and I did doors, raised panel doors and thresholds and door jams and lock sets. I did all that, but I also did the lathe. So I made, you know, balusters for staircases and Newell, you know, I did all that columns for houses. So I know how to do it. I just no longer own a lathe. And so um, it was faster to hire someone to help me out with it. Yeah. And it's so time consuming, the pieces that you make because they are so large. Like how long did it take you on average to make each chess piece? Probably three to four weeks. So it was, yeah, it was a long process making. (laughs) Whoa, yeah. Making the board. Yeah, it was a few years of, you know, just like, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, It's a big time commitment. Gosh, yeah, that is, that is crazy. You were actually at a Mad Woman's book club recently and we were talking about the birth of the chess queen, which partly inspired this show. So it was really great that you were there. Um, it was in partnership with the World Chess Hall of Fame, actually. And you um, showed us the basement where, not the basement, the first floor, I think, where these chess pieces are stored. Yeah, they're still they're on my front porch. I was thinking I could have zoomed from there, but it's it's closer to the road. It would have been louder because it's not um, insulated. They're there. I think we'll have another exhibition with them. I hope so, because I only had one. And I, I, you know, as you know, we set it up on a 16 by 16 foot floor. And I've always imagined that it could definitely be 24 by 24 or even 36 by 36. So I would love to have the opportunity to, to bring it out again and work with you and Daniel again. Oh, yeah, me too. I would love to. And I know like you, it's the kind of thing you want to keep the family together, right? The, uh, the chess the chess set, you don't want to separate all of the family members. I had one person who wanted to buy, of all things, the pawns, you know, and I thought just the the hassle for me of having it redone just wasn't worth <laughs> the selling it. Because I think they just liked it as sort of interior decor or something. It was like, I don't know. I just, I said, no, I didn't want to, I could, you know, I could have them redone. I just, but it would have been more trouble than it was worth at the end of the day. I had a few people ask me if I would sell individual and I could and and remake them. But again, I just, I do see it as a set. And I, I thought about scanning them, you know, and making like a three inch size or six inch size chest set with those. And I talked to someone about it. The price was kind of prohibitive. I didn't really have any sponsor financial backer, but you could make them three inch or six inch you could scan them all and keep like all the unique pieces, or you could scan one bishop, right? For each side and kind of make them a little bit more traditional. It was interesting kind of the 
the discussion I had around trying to see if I could mass produce them. Oh, that's a great idea. I love that. Maybe in the future, like if you continue to have it more venues, you know, because then perhaps like you could partner with the venue to help make it like more affordable. Yeah. And have like more a version that, you know, could be a travel size version. I love it because I think what's really, to me, like what's powerful about this chess set beyond the female empowerment angle is I really like the, uh, the sea creature angle because I think it's, you know, it's a, it's like chess, you know, there's a great, I don't have it in front of me, but there's a beautiful actual chess passage from, um, Lolita by Nabokov about the chess board being like this kind of like aquarium that you kind of get sucked into. Right. And I think like the idea that it's like this, um, the sea that if you know about chess, you see everything. And if you don't, you just don't see what's going on. So yeah, I think it's like just such a beautiful metaphor. And we definitely don't know, not, not everyone, but like a lot of us don't know very much about this other world. Right. Cause it's, it's dark and it's, you know, it's not that accessible. It's not like birds or something you can just see with binoculars, you know, it's, it's, um, inhospitable, you know, the deep, deep sea and we can't breathe underwater. You know, there's a lot of things that prevent us from really knowing what goes on in the deep sea. Do you scuba dive or have you? Uh, snorkeling. No, I've never, never gone scuba diving. Well, I think after this chess set, like you would probably love it, right? Because you've learned so much more about the sea life. Yeah, just reading the books about octopus and um, I think it was Sid Montgomery is her name. But just reading books about squid and, um, you know, octopus totally made me wanted to go underwater and like watch their behavior. It just was so interesting. Yeah, because you'd have so many more reference points than like the average person who's just trying scuba diving. You should totally do it. You should go on your list now. Yes. And um, how about chess? Has like this work in chess and the match of the matriarchs inspired you to like learn the game itself more? Yeah, I played as a kid. I mean, I know how to play. My brother always beat me. (laughs) And so I never, I don't know. I got discouraged, I think, you know, I, um, I would love to, to play and be a stronger player. You know, I have grandchildren now that are like seven and five. So this might be a good age, you know, to start playing with them. Cause I think for them, it's so fresh. They're, they're in it, they're learning it. And that might be a good way for me to connect with them. And for me, just to brush up on my game and build some confidence about my ability to play chess. But I mean, you know, yeah, maybe you didn't take to chess as much as your brother, but it kind of created this deep seated interest that, you know, materialized in your own career so many decades later. What was that like? one thing that you feel, is there one thing that you credit to this overall inspiration for the match of the matriarchs? Was it seeing Marilyn's book? What was it? I kind of got into, well, your book and her book, because once I had the idea, what it was, was I had a show, the first museum show I ever had was at the New Bedford Art Museum. I made a proposal and again, it's a, it's the same town as Seagull Cinderella. So I have like a lot of connections to New Bedford, but basically it's a whaling town. And so I made a proposal that I wanted to revisit the idea of the ship prow carvings, but as sculptures. And so they're typically female, which interested me. They were typically like the captain's wives or the patron's wives or mothers, which again was interesting to me. And so that was the inspiration. And so I made a small body of work that was like the narwhal and the squid And I think one of the octopus and the orca and the elephant seal. 
So I had like this small show with like five sculptures down in New Bedford Art Museum. And I thought, I really want to do more with this. And that was really kind of, I think, where the the chess set came in. Because the whole idea was these mermaids, that mermaids are kind of like these hypersexualized female figures, although they're also really powerful. The subject of myths and for in almost in almost all cultures have this idea of this fish, half fish, half human. And so it was it was like kind of I wanted to flip that and think more about like the power of women or the power of sea creatures than again, not just kind of like sexualized beauty. And so those kind of ideas were converging for me. And I and that's when I read about the squid and the whale and so it kind of went from there, this idea that revisiting the idea of a mermaid as more of like a power figure and power because they're smart or they're clever. So that that's kind of where that all came from for me. That I, I have a very strong feminist outlook on the world and it's, it's, it's almost always like a source of inspiration for my own work. Things that, you know, piss me off, <laughs> I'd like to see differently. I have it. And so that's like a lot of my motivation as a sculptor and an artist. It was so great having you on my podcast, Tana. I mean, everybody can find out more about you on your website, which is really informative. Um, DonnaDodsonArtist.com. And you're also on all the social media networks, particularly um, I follow you on Twitter and Instagram at DonnaDodsonArtist. You can find out more and we're going to have a lot of a links in the show notes to some of the things we talked about here as it was like such a visual discussion. So I want to give you guys reference points to what we talked about. No, just thank you so much, Jennifer. This was like such a wide ranging conversation and um, I was so nervous, but I I really enjoyed it. So thank you. If you like what we're doing at US Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our US Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. The US Chess suite of podcasts, including Ladies Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. chess podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be ladies' night. Now according to Sockfish, I got it all wrong After slightly My dear Capablanco, you tell me we'll learn more from our defeats. Who needs victories?